0: This is a Suno India production and you're listening to the Suno India Show.
1: Most statistical surveys see families as a unit. While they might give you the average income of a household, they very rarely go into the details of how this income is distributed across the various individuals within the household. Women, over time, have always been neglected by such studies but what does the data say about income distribution between couples do heteronormative couples earn the same amount of money the short answer is no a research study conducted by professors Deepak Malghan and Hema Swaminathan titled global trends in intra house gender inequality documents this income disparity in detail the study covers the time period of four decades between 1973 and 2016 with a sample size of 85 million households across 45 countries. As expected, women in the household earn less than the men. The inequality between the incomes though has declined. The study found that over these decades the inequality between the income of husbands and wives have declined by 20%. However, the gap between the incomes is still significant enough to need further investigation. In India, the income inequality between spouses was 26%. India was also the only country that was studied where only 36% of the sample were working couples, which means in the rest of the couples, the women was not working outside the home. Hi, I'm Koneka Balhutra, your host for this episode of the Sono India Show. To understand the reasons behind the income gap, I spoke to Hema Swaminathan, one of the authors of this study. Hema is an associate professor at the Centre for Public Policy, Indian Institute of Management, Bangalore. Her broad interests are in the areas of poverty and inequality using a gender perspective. So, could you start by telling our listeners the importance of measuring income inequalities between spouses? And as you write, historically, we have assumed that the income is divided equally among all members of the family. So, what are the problems with this assumption, if you can talk about the differences in engagement in labour market among spouses?
0: Right, yeah. So, you know, let me sort of take it away from just looking at spouses. So you're looking at the population and you're seeing how unequal or equal they are, right? So how do we get to this measure? So if you're looking at income, most countries world over, they collect income data at the household level. They don't necessarily collect it for all individual members. And so what happens is once they collect this household income, then they have to apportion it among individuals, right? So now we have suddenly moved from the household as a unit of data collection to apportioning it between individuals and the simplest way to do that is to use sort of like a per capita method where you're taking the household income and dividing it by the number of people living in that household right now so this is clearly wrong um it doesn't make sense right because not everybody is earning and so in some ways you're what you're doing is actually understating inequality right because you're also giving a measure of income to someone who might not have a labor market earning at all right so that's that's one reason of why this is a problem this assumption that uh, income is distributed equally but another assumption that also comes from say a feminist economics angle is that mainstream economics has in the past assumed that the household is unitary or it's unified it's a unified entity right and that brings with this the assumption of income pooling right so even if different members are earning different things, there's a common pot, the income is pooled, and then it is divided amongst the household members. Now that, again, this assumption does not hold up, right? Because households as much, I mean, people form households and it's very clearly an agglomeration of individuals, right? And conceptually, the household is a place of cooperation, but a place of conflict as well. So what this income pooling assumption typically Means is that, that the identity of the income earner does not matter. Now, we would all agree, right, that the identity of the income earner actually matters, right? It is a cornerstone of economic empowerment, right? Whether I make my own money or I get it from my husband means very different things to me. So when I go out, I earn my own money. I mean, anybody who has a job will, or who who, who is employed and who is paid in some way will attest to that, right? the fact that you earn money is tremendously important for a whole host of reasons in terms of your ability to control it for your confidence so for your self esteem and all of that right so basically that's why that's why we say that we let's move away from income pooling because a it is empirically wrong it is conceptually wrong we really need to know the distribution of how earnings happens between spouses and very often the world has and is and probably still is largely patriarchal. We've followed a male breadwinner, female caregiving model, right? Mm -hmm. There's been some shifts in some parts of the world, but it's not widespread. Still very gendered responsibilities. Women are in charge of social reproduction. So the work that they largely do is invisible and it's not in the productive sector. It's in the reproductive sector, right? So again, when women are not earning Which is why, I mean, it also builds on to your second part when you said labor market engagement, right? So this limits their ability to engage with the labor market and thereby also limits their earnings. So when we make an income pooling assumption, we are just really distorting our understanding of what's happening within the household and also distorting our understanding of overall income inequality.
1: Could you also tell our listeners about your study? What is the time period and how many countries did you include in the study? And if you could also tell us the broad findings related to India in relation to other countries studied.
0: So, you know, our study is actually the time period is based from 1973 to 2016. So it's a very broad span. And we have worked with the LIS database, which is the Luxembourg Income Study Database. It's a global database. Uh, I mean, it's actually a wonderful public good, right? Because this uh, LIS people or the LIS team, what they do is they collect household surveys from all over the world or whoever wants to make it available to them, wants to include it in their repository and they harmonize this data. What that means is they'll take the database Say the income data of Italy, the income data of Australia, Austria, whatever countries, and then um, harmonize all the variables. So all the income variables, education variables, are all the same, right? So for a researcher who is wanting to look at global distributions, this is a treasure trove, right? So this is, uh, I think, one of the first ever global study of intra-household earnings, earnings inequality. We've looked over this time period of 1973 to 2016. Um, more recent data is available, but we sort of drew a line at 2016 because that's, that was when the data was available for us. And it's 45 unique countries because in India, we don't have income data. So we don't have income data. So the income data that has been included has been only from the IHDS, India Household Development Study. So it's a large data set, nationally representative data set for India. So broadly, what we find is that uh, intra-household income inequality is pervasive. This is not a problem of the global south. It's as much there in developed countries as well as in developing countries. And intra-household inequality in earnings has declined. We are only talking, what we looked at was only labor market earnings we didn't look at wealth we didn't look at transfers government income uh, rents or pensions and all of it we looked only at earnings income so directly a reflection of labor market and that this intra household earnings is substantive it has declined by about 20% but it is still substantive enough that it matters when we talk about overall inequality
1: what are the various factors within a family that affect income inequality between the spouses like per capita household net wealth, education of wife, husband's employment status, etc. It will be great if you can specify India-based findings too.
0: See, you know, this is a very context-specific question. When we talk about what are the factors that drive um, income inequality, this varies between developed, developing countries. Uh, But it also varies, I think, by country. Uh, What applies in US might not apply in certain countries in Europe. So broadly, uh, Let me say there are likely to be education differences, even though girls have broadly caught up. uh, There is still uh, gender gaps in education in some countries in uh, college level. In some countries in the college level, there is no longer gender gap or there is a reversal of the gender gap. But often girls get to choose uh, or choose majors or choose careers that might not be as rewarding. So if you look at STEM, the STEM fields, there's a greater underrepresentation of women in STEM fields. And these are among the fields also where there might be um, higher remuneration, right? Uh, so these are some of the factors. If you look at India specific factors, India is actually a very a peculiar country where women's labor force participation is concerned. We've probably amongst the few countries that has really enjoyed uh, close to double digit growth for over a decade, but women's labor force participation is low. In, for urban India, it has been stagnating. Uh, um, yeah, for urban India, it has been stagnating. And whereas for rural India, it's actually been declining. If you look at the latest uh, uh, NSS numbers or the ones that have stopped uh, that related to 2018, right? So there are lots of theories. One is that there is a income effect or what we call a household income effect, where if the husband actually starts earning really well, then the household becomes more prosperous and the woman withdraws from the labor market. Right? See because a woman's employment is not considered central. She is always seen as a supplemental source of income. So once there is enough money to go around and the ha- household can function well, women step back. Then there are also social norms which say that women ought to be taking care of the household, uh, women ought to be taking care of the children, the older people, they are responsible for transmission of uh, culture, social capital. So there's this, the greater the parenting sort of needs as they are increasing, then you also find women stepping back. Again, this is tied very much to a household income effect. You won't find people at the bottom end of the distribution that women not working because they can't afford to have only one person working. But when you can afford, then a woman is uh, stepping back, right? So it's an income effect. It's tied to social norms. There's also stigma. The social norms affect not only the women, but they also affect the men, right? So there's a stigma for men to have their wives being employed. It's as if it affects their notions of masculinity, right? That I am not man enough to be able to provide for my family, right? Very standard, very Bollywood kinds of notions of masculinity, but which are unfortunately very true, right? It's like, I can provide for my family. I wear the pants in the family. So there's feeling of uh, not being able to provide, feeling of being threatened, Uh, by, say, female uh, employment if the wife is going out, meeting people. So there are also questions of you will meet strange men, you will have to meet strangers, right? All of that. So those kinds of questions. The essential control of women's mobility agency, all of that also comes in. And then some studies have also pointed to the fact that that there are uh, issues around uh, physical security and safety, that women are worried and families are worried about sexual violence, right? I think recently there was a study or maybe a couple of years ago, a study that looked at Delhi, young college girls in Delhi, and they were not looking at employment, but they were looking at the educational choices that young women were making. And women were often making choices in colleges that were closer rather than further because they were worried about being taking public transport, worried about molestation, right? So these are actually very real kinds of factors that have an impact on men and i mean on the women taking the kinds of employment and on families that allow women to take jobs now so these are kind of supply side explanations but there are also some demand side factors um that people have explored uh, in the literature is that a we have had largely a period of jobless growth right i mean if you followed sort of the narrative around the indian growth model right we moved from agriculture to services sort of bypassing manufacturing. Now, if you look at Southeast Asia, Latin America, the biggest uh, employment opportunities for women have actually come from labor-intensive manufacturing, garments uh, kinds of industries, which India has not yet, has not been able to capitalize. India's service sector is also fairly capital-intensive and skill-intensive. So when there are fewer jobs to go around and there is a high competition for jobs, A, women might not have those skills, And B, when there's competition for jobs, women are likely to step back and say, let men get the jobs, right? So this competition for jobs can also affect. And data has also shown that women's job requirements are not met by the labor market. So women prefer jobs that are flexible, preferably part-time and nearer to their house so that they can combine both uh, home responsibilities, childcare, as well as work but these are not necessarily the kinds of jobs that are offered by the market, right? So in rural India, with a fall of agriculture, with agriculture being um, sort of not being the generator of employment that it once was, non-farm and employment opportunities have not really kicked in, right? So if those had, then maybe we would see women stepping up into the labor market a little more. So it's really a mix of both supply as well as demand side factors that affects women's ability to have Uh, labor market earnings.
1: As per your study, intra-household gender inequality has declined by 20% in the past four decades. Could you share how this inequality varies across countries, particularly when compared to India?
0: Okay, so let me just explain a little bit about how we kind of measured this intra-household inequality. So what we've done is we looked at the difference between
1: right at the beginning when we were talking about the income pooling assumption, right, the Gini coefficient is a statistical measure of economic inequality in a population. Suppose
0: there's a couple um, and one of them is uh, earning and another person is not, right? We would, in in a Gini calculation, we would still uh, divide, uh, attribute the total couple earnings to both of them. So if, if it was 100 rupees, then the man gets 50 and the woman gets 50, right? And you would calculate your Gini. But whereas in real life, it could be that the Woman is making only 20, but the man is making 80, right? So in in which case, the genie which is actually looking at true earnings will be much higher. So it will show a more unequal distribution, right? So this is what we call as an individual level genie, where you're actually looking at earnings. You're not making this per capita assumption. So in a lot of cases, as you might imagine, um, there will be people with very low earnings or no earnings. So the individual level genie will show a higher level of inequality than the couple genie. Right so we've taken the difference between the individual and the couple genie, and we've sort of looked at this percentage spread between these two, and that is our proxy for intra household earnings inequality, right so it's not sort of a straight number that we've derived from the data set. this is just a little bit of background on how it was calculated so this twenty percent decline is from nineteen seventy three to twenty sixteen, and in nineteen seventy three I think it was probably around um fifty five Uh, percent. And uh, in 19-2016, the number was around around 25-26%. But broadly, one can say that there's been a secular decline uh, within and across countries. In UK, for example, between the period 1974 to 2016, the spread declined from uh, 53% to about 27%. uh, And in the same time period for US, the spread declined from about 50% to 33%, whereas in Norway, the spread was lower to begin with, and it declined from 46 to 30% between the period of 1979 to 2013. In India, it is hard to make these comparisons because, like I said, India does not collect income data, right? So we have income data only for two points in time, 2011 and 2015. Uh, and in 2011, this was 26%, the intra household the proxy for intra-household um, inequality was 26% and we don't have the number for 2015. So we can't make that comparison. Um, unfortunately, like I said, NSS doesn't collect income data, but now the CMI is also collecting um, income data. So these kinds of studies are possible going ahead.
1: An interesting finding I noticed in your study was that in top percentile households or more prosperous households, women's earnings share either plateaus or slightly declines. Could you discuss what the possible reasons for that might be? And also, how does the intra-household wage gap change as we move from lower-income households to high-income households?
0: So as households become more prosperous, there is this income effect. Women can afford to step back, right? So that's partly one reason. Another reason is, you know, increasingly we have seen there is this issue of what economists call assortative mating assortative mating simply means that people choose to get married to others who are or form unions with others who are very similar to themselves in terms of uh, backgrounds characteristics and when i say assortative meeting i'm thinking of education right you go to college you meet someone so the chances that you're meeting someone and getting married within a same sort of class uh and education is much higher right um and this is particularly true over the years. So what happens is while there is assortative meeting and education, there isn't much of that in employment. And this is largely because when, say, you go to uh, and in high income, high earning kinds of professions like banking, finance, all right, uh, there is a very high penalty for flexible hours of work. Right. Because these kinds of professions actually want you to work very long hours and be available more or less round the clock. This is not possible for women, by and large, these kinds of expectations, because they will take a break if there is a childbirth or if there is a small child in the family, they will take a break. One, that break is biological. And then that break is also gender ascribed. Right. So they are the ones who are sort of taking Uh, the lead in home care, right? So when women step back, then this causes a further disruption. So these are some of the reasons, right? So in high-income households, why we find that this gap, you would expect that it would at least be 50% on average. When you say women's share of couple earnings would be equal to men's share, then we, we would expect it to be at least 50%. But that's not true. Not even in the Scandinavian countries do you find where there's actually very little a gender wage gap, right, where people are pretty close to earning uh, equal uh, pay for equal work, irrespective of gender. Even there, there is a gap because even there, there is the expectation that it is a woman that who will take care of the household. So, in terms of share of earnings, we find that as households get more prosperous, this relationship between uh, Women's share of couple earnings and household economic status is kind of non linear in the sense that it is not a positive association all through. You don't find women uh, contributing a greater amount to couple earnings as an, as uh, households are getting richer, right? For several of the reasons that I just mentioned.
1: So, what are the differences in the ways in which men and women operate in the labor market? Could you also explain to the listeners? what motherhood penalty is and how does it affect the financial status of a woman post-childbirth?
0: So, you know, the motherhood penalty is a term that really means what happens to women's ability to engage with the labor market around childbirth or when she becomes a mother, right? It can affect how much she's paid. It can affect whether she decides to participate in the labor market or not. And it can affect how long she can actually work, the intensity of her work in the labor market, whether she goes from full-time to part-time or even if she's part-time, she chooses to work far fewer hours, right? So studies have shown that around childbirth or when uh, for young mothers, there is a huge decline in the labor market attachment of these women. And this is called a motherhood penalty. This can arise out of several kinds of issues one is because woman needs to step back she takes a break and then once she takes a break it becomes much harder for her to come back right so there are certain kinds of pres- uh, professions or more maybe lots of professions where you take a break for a year then you find that your trajectory has just come down right you're you're not on the same trajectory that you were before a because you have gone a bit part-time or you want flexibility or your manager has decided that your Priorities have now shifted from the work to your children. So you're not being given the kinds of responsibilities that you were given before. Okay. So this has been proved quite conclusively in the developing world, in the developed world. We don't find a lot of evidence for this in the developing world simply because we don't have good quality longitudinal data. right? But there is some evidence that women do uh, tend to move back or they move from the formal sector to the informal sector. Because in the informal sector, you can actually combine childcare with informal work. But then there's a penalty, maybe not in terms of participation, but in terms of losing the fact that you now belong to a formal economy and the social security benefits that might come with a formal economy. right? So from informal to moving to informal is again a problem. right? But men don't experience any of these kinds of or fathers, I would say, do not experience a penalty. A very famous and recent study that was done in Denmark that we think of as sort of one of uh, the frontiers of being very good for women and high for gender inequality finds that the motherhood penalty operates that even after 10 years, women don't recover the earnings that they have, whereas it doesn't find for fathers. And this, they say, is really because of social norms of what men should be doing and what women should be doing. And these social norms are not just about what men and women should be doing. It's also the fact that there's a double burden and women just can't cope. Right? You're working and you're also expected to pick up at home. The expectation is not there for men. So, under the norms of men being able to participate within the household, these kinds of penalties will continue to operate.
1: Okay, so India recently extended maternity leave to six months. How do welfare and workplace policies affect? income inequality between spouses. Can you also elaborate on the kind of women-friendly policies that have an impact? So actually, India's Maternity Act has
0: extended it to six months. Uh, it's, we are still sort of in early days. It's been only a couple of years, I think, maybe two or three years, right? But the initial reports are not encouraging. In fact, I think Team Lees did a study, which is a private company that did a study which said that big companies are actually recruiting far fewer women because of the maternity act than they would have earlier, which kind of makes sense from the company's point of view because the government has mandated a six-month maternity leave, but there's actually no payout from the government. There is no support from the government to these companies saying we'll bear half the cost. Now, the cost is entirely pushed on to the company, right? So now trying to hire a woman, particularly if she's still young and if she's still in her reproductive age, companies are going to think of her as a cost uh, center. And if they would get a man of very similar uh, capabilities and skills, they'd say, okay, let's just go with the man. I mean, already there is an inherent bias, right? Now you're just sort of saying now there is also a financial outlay associated with hiring a woman, which the government is not even halfway meeting. I mean, it's all fine for the Googles and the IBMs. They can probably do this because they are multinationals. And anyway, they have these kinds of policies set in place. But certainly for the smaller companies, this is not affordable. So the Maternity Act, I think, was rightly intentioned, but hastily conceived. Not very well thought out and not very well implemented, right? So that's partly a problem. The other issue is what are the kinds of policies? I think... Like we should really learn from the Scandinavian countries. One is that paternity leave should also be made mandatory, right? We have a measly paternity leave of I think 15 days in government offices. I'm not even sure if that applies to the private sector. It applies only to the public sector, right? That's a joke. What does 15 days do? Nothing, right? You have to make it, at least from a company's point of view, it has to be, equally uh, what should i say expensive i guess to hire a man in his reproductive age which of course can be quite long right as it is to hire a woman in her reproductive age so if it was mandated six months for the woman for the mother and six months for the father then you won't necessarily find companies making argument based on financial expenses there might be other kinds of discrimination that might still be there but it would take this away right so There has to be paternity leave as well because, I mean, apart from, say, good practice for the company, it's also very good practice for the family. It's good practice for the fathers. It can help break this gender stereotype that it's only the mother who has to take care, right? Beyond biological reproduction and beyond the first month when she is recovering, there is nothing that says it's the mother who has to take care, right? If you have offices that have uh, daycare centers, if you're able to take breastfeeding breaks, if you're able to sort of go check up on your child, if you know the child is in a safe take care. So these are the kinds of family-friendly policies that can be instituted. Um, lots of places, Scandinavian countries have done this, right? They are sort of the world leaders in pushing what are called family-friendly policies. Uh, which is about public daycare, about breaks, about paternity leave, maternity leave. In fact, paternity leave has to be taken. It's not a choice. You're forced to take it, right? Um, and uh, about also elderly care. It's not about child care alone, right? We often forget that there is a population that is also growing old that also needs care. And usually that again falls on the woman, right? So what are the provisions for elderly care? Uh, is there publicly... Um, uh, provided assistance available? Or is that recognized? Do you also prioritize men for it, right? So it's, I mean, these are the sort of broad policies that are in place, but my own sense is nothing is going to change unless we really change the gender norms around it, prescriptions of what is considered um, feminine, prescriptions of what is considered masculine. How often do you find a man saying, I'm applying for sick leave? so that I can go home and take care of my sick mother, right? Or take care of my sick mother-in-law. Maybe he'll take care of a sick mother, but applying for a sick mother-in-law is even unheard of. So you can have a gamut of policies, uh, but uh, even in the countries like Denmark, they only go that far because of these prescriptive roles. But certainly there's a lot that can be done. And say from companies, again, they can do a lot in terms of ensuring that you're not discriminating when you're hiring ensuring that the kind of work and say the projects the woman is put back on post maternity leave, there is enough support, you suddenly don't reduce her workload because you have assumed that she cannot work, right? So I think there has to be very active uh, engagement also from the company's side.
1: Also, how does this difference in income between heteronormative couples affect their interpersonal relationships?
0: You know, this uh, difference in income... As or the ability to earn, it sort of goes back to the first point that you had raised about the identity of the income earner making a difference, right? So it makes a big difference, particularly, I think, within a couple unit or a spousal unit, how much, whether a person is A, earning at all, right? A, that because it's a big fallback option for the women. Right. To be able to have an independent stream of income. Right. Otherwise, in a lot of times, women's work, because it is so invisible, even though they are really involved in sort of maintaining and taking care of the household, household maintenance, child care and all of it, which really enables men to have the kinds of careers that they need to have to work long hours, to not worry about the household and all of it. But at the end of the day, there is no value that's put to this invisible labor. You turn around and you ask, oh, but what do you do? You're sitting at home the whole day. So that is very, very corrosive to self-esteem, to self-confidence. And it also means that you don't have a chance if you're not earning in the labor market and also kind of given the norms that we have, It also means that you're not accumulating wealth or assets, right? So if you want to go buy a house, often it's in the man's name. Very rarely, it's there as joint property. Yes, there are schemes to promote women's asset ownership, but by and large, it also means that she's not able to buy what she wants to, right? So it also leads to wealth inequality right so this also means there's a lot when women have an independent source of earnings or they have a fallback option there's enough evidence that suggests that it's very protective of intimate partner violence now intimate partner violence is nothing but domestic violence that happens within the household or domestic violence that is perpetuated by an intimate partner right that it's very protective the minute you have an independent source of income because there is something that says okay i can at least walk out of the house i can walk out of this relationship Or the fact that you have a little more agency, self-esteem, you're able to push back, right? Or the intimate partner is also a little worried of the consequences that can happen, right? It's not just about also earnings. It's also about having a peer network, having your own friends, or having people that you can go and talk to, right? You often find uh, women who are working in the fields or who are sort of, even doing the worst kinds of most exploitative, drudgery kind of labor, they do band together, right? Because there is a camaraderie that is formed that is not just limiting you to within their household. So it has a lot of, a huge range of implications on their individual well-being. And there are also studies which show that when women are having an independent uh, source of earnings and good fallback option, they're able to exercise more voice within the household. So they have greater decision-making power within the household on, say, children's education, their own clothing, children's health, um, and their own mobility, their ability to sort of go to the market alone, right? And the minute we start thinking about these kinds of things, say, ability to go to the market alone, it also means that they might be able to do transactions in the market, right? When you think of agriculture, women are often the ones doing a lot of the agricultural labor, But then they never realize the fruits of the labor because if they are not allowed to travel alone, the man takes it to the market and then she never sees the returns from those kinds of proceeds. So there are many implications in terms of individual well-being as well as household well-being.
1: Finally, could you go over the intergenerational impacts of this intra-household inequality and how does it affect young girls born into households where there is a very clear economic difference between the parents?
0: I think that's a great question because one is not just thinking about this generation, but one also is thinking about intra-generational outcomes, right? But I would modify it to say how it affects both boys and girls, right? Not just girls. At one level, you're right. It affects girls because when mothers have greater control over income or they have an independent source of income, the decisions that they make also favor girls, It's not that girls suddenly become better off than boys, but at least they are brought up to the same level, right? So, greater investment in girls' education, better BMI outcomes, better health outcomes uh, for uh, girls as well. But in my mind, I think one of the main channels through which this operates is through gender identities and role play. So, when you see uh, parents on a fairly even footing, not that you have to do everything exactly the same way, fairly even putting um, when you see your mother um, sort of being confident and assertive. I think it has a huge influence on uh, gender identities, what young boys and girls pick up and their own aspirations and their ideas of how families should be, right? What are the roles? So girls pick up on how they model themselves on their mothers. Boys also do model themselves, Right. They will also be, I mean, studies have shown that if you have a boy who's grown up in a household where there has been good participation by their mothers, much more likely to be um, accepting or be more progressive in his views towards his wife or spouse or partner or whatever it is, right? And another thing is if there is, if it is more protective of intimate partner violence, again, one of the big uh, determinants of a man being violent is his exposure to childhood violence, right? So if there is a lower exposure to childhood violence, then both the boy and the girl will pick it up, right? So they are being exposed to gender norms, maybe a different set of gender norms from a very early age. I think it affects identity and aspirations, in addition to sort of the health education outcomes that one is talking about, right? You see a strong woman in the household, You see a strong man in the household, And by strong, I don't necessarily mean a hyper-masculine man. I mean a man who is feminist and progressive. Then those are the ideas that you will also look for as you grow up. So you would also grow up, I think, with uh, a sort of, uh, what would I say, progressive set of attitudes.
1: Okay, so is there anything else that you would like to add? I think, I I don't want to
0: end on a positive note. I think we've made a lot of progress, but... uh, Well, positive and cautionary note. I think we've made a lot of progress, but uh, I think we have still miles to go, Uh, particularly in terms of thinking about norms, particularly in terms of thinking about attitudes. It's not, just that you go out and earn a whole lot of money. Uh, It's also what you think is feminine, what you think is masculine, how boys and girls should behave. Um, I mean, you see lots of ads nowadays also that are quite regressive, that are quite patriarchal. Uh, In my mind, I think uh, we ought to question these a lot more.
1: Please rate our podcast and
0: leave a comment if you like it. Underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people. So please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website, sunoindia.in, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.